This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio. It's Friday, July 7th, 2017, 4th of July week. We're taking the week off, and we're going to flash back to a show we did on 9-19-2008. This was episode number 95 with Major Long. Major Long is a fire restoration pioneer. We've been putting together some nice restoration pioneer uh, shows over the last couple months here, and uh, Cliff's redoing some blogs and, and doing blogs for ones we didn't have one for. Uh, before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors. IAQ Radio marquee sponsors are John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net. Legends Environmental Insurance, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. That's legends-enviro.com. Our guest today is what I consider to be the perfect embodiment of a Southern gentleman. Major Leonard Long. By the time I joined the predecessor of the Restoration Industry Association in the mid-1970s, Major Long had established himself as a successful entrepreneur, restorer, and disaster restoration industry leader. In the Atlanta, Georgia area, he built a highly successful disaster restoration business model known as Smokemaster, which he subsequently franchised. To the best of my knowledge, Major Long was the first disaster restoration consultant offering to fly anywhere to provide disaster restoration consulting and estimating services to fellow restorers. He was always ahead of the curve when it came to embracing and adopting or developing new technology, whether it was a spiffy new camera that could incorporate the date on photos or developing, using, and marketing what may have been the industry's first disaster restoration estimating program. Major was always approachable and willing to share his expertise and ideas. He was president of RIA's predecessor in 1980 and also served a stint as a disaster restoration technical director there. Major unselfishly shared business tactics, trade secrets with fellow restorers and association members. He is a humble and an unsung industry pioneer who now lives in the Smoky Mountains of North Carolina. When Major learned that my family had developed some new smoke odor removal technology, he volunteered to beta test it for us. Major Long is the individual who taught me the most in the field of disaster restoration. We're privileged to chat with him today on IAQ Radio. Good afternoon, Major. Good afternoon, Claire. Okay. Well, Major, why don't you give us a little bit of background about what you did before you went into uh, disaster restoration? Well, uh, I, I went into fire restoration at a very young age, but uh, in particular, I, after, after attending uh, high school or graduating, I attended the University of Georgia for one year and found that uh, I wasn't really good at it, but uh, I would p- pick it up later. So I, I joined uh, the 101st Airborne and for for two years uh, spent at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, and then 
uh, after leaving there, I, I married Susan, my okay. first wife, uh, at 20 years old, or 21 years old. <clears throat> and I entered into partnership with my father-in-law in the construction of apartments and homes in which he, he built spec, spec homes and, and spec apartments, which uh, proved to be very risky because uh, working with him for four years, we went bankrupt. So this phase, though, proved very successful and, and useful in the, uh, for me in identifying structure methods and problems and components and uh, also the process of hiring and utilizing subcontractors and laborers was also an important tool that I learned during that period that fell, <clears throat> that went forward in uh, my success in fire restoration. I think that's about uh, That's good. That's okay. Well, what what caused you to uh, decide to enter the disaster restoration industry or disaster repair business? Well, after the construction failure, <clears throat> I partnered with a high school friend whose mother had a carpet cleaning business. He wanted to break away from his mother, <clears throat> and with my money, we started a new carpet cleaning firm with about ten thousand dollars. During this period. Uh, Several adjusters asked us to rectify some smoke damage, and uh, in this learning experience, I severed the partnership and started my new company, Smokemaster. I think that answers that one. Smokemaster. It's a great name. Uh, what sort of equipment did, did you have when you started Smokemaster? What did it consist of? Well, <clears throat> my upholstery. Uh, dry cleaning was accomplished with uh, a solvent and bucket mm -hmm. towel method. Right. Uh, and to wet clean, I used a certified upholstery machine. Mm -hmm. uh, or by hand, I used a soap solution with a bucket and terry cloth towels. Mm -hmm. Very simple methods, but uh, at the time, they were uh, what we had to work with. Uh, on carpets, until they had been a steam, I used a Hill rotary brush solution tank machine. Mm -hmm with a hill tank vacuum for extraction. Mm -hmm. And then I purchased one of the first deep steam carpet cleaning machines in uh, about 1975 for $5,500. And after using it for about two months, I purchased two more from the Canadian company. Mm -hmm. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that machine? You know, what did it look like? What was it made out of? Um, you know, was it hard to learn how to use it? You know, was it complicated? Uh, well, it was. <clears throat> it was made out of completely shiny stainless steel, so <clears throat> it was an impressive piece of equipment to roll into. You know, into somebody's home or business. <clears throat> it had a base on wheels which held the mechanical components, and then it had two stainless steel commercial coffee pot urns on top of that that were the fresh water and recovery tanks. <laughs> also, they were so beautiful that seeing them in action would always bring tears to my eyes, almost. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I remember those machines very, very well. They were, they, and, I mean, 55, what year was this you spent, $5,500? 1975. Wow. I mean, you could probably buy a car for that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, it, I suspect. It was, but I, <clears throat> at the time I was, 
so impressed with steam carpet cleaning, and I had uh, there was no one in even in uh, the Atlanta area that had steam. So I was the first steam carpet cleaner in Atlanta, which is you know a big population. So it was it was uh, really it was a very impressive machine to me. <laughs> yeah, they used to drive. Uh, I'm sorry. They were always easy to break down, <clears throat> you know, for transportation into the job. And it weighed, I guess, about 75 pounds and was usually transported upstairs with a crew of two, but um, could be handled with one strong employee, you know, by breaking it down. Uh, of course, by this time in my career, I managed to get out of the most physical work, so I didn't have to. Well, um, you know, going back, I, I kind of remember those days as well. It was pretty dramatic because the customer, you know, could really see the difference. I think we used drag wands back then, you know, for cleaning the carpet. You kind of drag it across almost like a lawnmower, you know, moving backwards, and, and they were weighted. And uh, it was pretty dramatic. I mean, the photographs that you could take were really, uh, you know, whether they were postcards or whatever, the brochures that, that were utilized to market that. It was a very, very impressive uh, program. Well, how did you wash walls back then? What did you use for that? <clears throat> well, uh, at one point, uh, well, probably forever, I used uh, 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 a, a all-purpose cleaner, you know, in a bucket with mm -hmm. rags and a vacuum cleaner, you know, to, to pull it off or either terry cloth towels. But at one point, I bought a, uh, uh, a machine <clears throat> from, I believe it was a company called Wallmaster. Seemed right. like back then everyone had to put master on there. <laughs> right, 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 right. But anyway, this was a, a wall cleaning machine, and I think I paid, uh, I know I paid almost $10,000 for it. Wow. And it, it didn't do twat. It, it, <laughs> you know, you, you'd put rags on the end, and it had a vacuum system and a, and a spray system, but uh, it didn't do as well as uh, just the hand if we couldn't clean it with sponges then, uh, and had to wet clean it, it probably needed to be painted anyway. So, uh, you know, you, you did the best you could to get the loose set off. And uh, that's all I was trying to do, not get, you know, a dirt and marks off the wall. I was trying to get the, <clears throat> the loose soot or the, the, at least the soot that I could get off before it was painted. You know, my, my hat still goes off to you, you know, chasing that technology. You know, you were always out there, and, you know, a lot of times the first adopters really have the opportunity to take, uh, you know, it, advantage of this. So you were, I just wanted to check, you were using that machine to clean up after fires or just general cleaning? Oh, I, I didn't do any general cleaning. I see. Never. Okay. I just wanted to if make it sure. it wasn't smoked up, I didn't have anything to do with it. So you did some carpet cleaning, and then you started doing a lot of fire restoration. Right. I, I, I did clean carpets before I went into fire restoration, but that was, you know, the, the beginning. But then after I got involved in fire restoration, I would not clean carpet for people that had dirty carpets. Well, how did the, how did you get into the uh, fire restoration business? Did did adjusters call you, or you know, did they get to know about you through some other means? Well, I usually called on them uh, when I first found out I needed <clears throat> to uh, get my work from insurance adjusters, and 
uh, I found out where they all were, and I made it a <laughs> made it a point to uh, call on them on a regular basis, whether they gave me any work or not, until you know they were sick of seeing me. But in most cases, if it was a big fire, uh, the only recourse was at the time for them to use service master and a lot of them were very upset with service master by the time i i came in uh, to business so uh it was fortunate that i came in during that period uh, and i took a lot of their business away of course you know over the course of uh you know so many years i think that's which a great pleased me, which pleased me uh enormously since uh, at one point you know they took my my name away so yeah, we'll get I was it. Glad to hurt at least their their uh, Atlanta franchise. Yeah, well, we're gonna get it. We're gonna get into that in a bit. Uh, tell me a little bit about what your facility was like when you first started your business, and then you know, did it evolve at all, and and how it may have evolved. Uh, well, when I first went into business, uh, I was I was. Uh, having to utilize my father-in-law's basement mm-hmm. uh, to clean rugs because I didn't have a, a plant. So it had it had so many posts in it that I could only clean about a quarter of a 9 by 12 rug at a time. And I had to roll it, roll it out and, you know, until I got the whole thing cleaned. And then I put it out in his backyard uh, to dry on the grass. But then the neighbors started complaining when they saw, you know, 30 or 40 rugs out there. And right, right. <laughs> So I finally had to leave uh, that particular situation. Uh, but then uh, at some point after that, I, I rented a little warehouse that had about a 1,000 or 1,200 square feet in it, and I was able to use it to put furniture from fires in and, and also clean rugs and do whatever. You know, it wasn't, wasn't big enough to really expand into, but it was a start until somehow one night it burned down with all the people's furniture in there that was that I'd already picked up from fire. So uh, the Atlanta Journal made a big deal of, you know, the, the man that uh, specializes in cleaning up the fire damages is his plant burns down. <laughs> so, so anyway, that was a bad start. But anyway, it was, it was a start. And then I moved to another warehouse. And uh, eventually I got more fires and more trucks and more personnel and uh, everything worked out real good. How did you come up with this vault storage idea and, you know, packing out and so on and so forth? Well, it's been a long, it's been an idea, you know, around for a long time with moving and storage companies. And I used to buy my boxes, you know, for packouts uh, from moving and storage places uh, before I started buying them directly from the box people. But uh, I saw the way they they vaulted all their furniture, and uh, it, it looked substantially neater than uh, what I was used to. So uh, I, I took that idea and went with it, and it, it worked out real good. I was just at a uh, big contents cleaning place this week, Amrestore, down in uh, Baltimore, and they have those big vaults all through the place. So uh, they're still using it today, Major. Yeah, and he was the, the fellow that introduced it to the industry. What did you use for smoke odor removal when you, you know, back in those days? Well, we used several different kind of machines. Uh, one was, uh, 
I still can't remember the name of the shotgun machine that you used to sell, the real long. Oh, that that was a thermogen. But before that, I remember you were using. Thermogen. I remember you were using a microgen ULV. Can you tell us a little bit about that one? Well, that's the only one that I had, and and I really, uh, I don't think I, I I got real sold on it. I I just. Uh, uh, you can probably tell me, tell me more about what that machine is like than I can. Well, I remember I, that machine. Again, it was a state-of-the-art machine, and that machine was probably three or four thousand dollars in the early '70s as well. And that was the first machine that could take a liquid and break it down into fine droplets. And what was cool about that machine is it was powered by a chainsaw motor. And there was a little blower on there, and the blower on there was actually the supercharger for a Porsche. And uh, you put the solution in, and, you know, I'll, I'll never forget. Uh, you had a photograph of, I think, one of your employees up in an attic, and I remember he had a red shirt. He was an African-American guy, and he had his respirator on, and, you know, he was up there just, you know, fogging the heck out of that attic. And I was pretty impressed, actually, because I, I knew about the technology because I came out of the pest control field, and, you know, we used them there. But, I mean, again, that was another pricey, you know, piece of equipment, and uh, you were one of the first people uh, that, that utilized it. Did your firm do full-service major? Did you do decorating and, and painting and uh, structural repairs and all that stuff, or did you just do personal property? Well, <clears throat> we did personal property, but we also did cleaning and deodorization of structure. We didn't, if it needed to be gone any further with painting or, or, or redecorating, then we left that for the contractors because uh, the contractors in Atlanta didn't have too many ways to, to to get people to do the work we did as far as cleaning the structure before them. So they would utilize us as a subcontractor a lot. So we didn't want to in any way, you know, step on their toes. So we found it to be successful just to, just to work, you know, within the realm of the things we knew how to do. You know, what's interesting is your business, I guess, had its ups and had its downs and, uh, you know what how did you let's talk a little bit about pricing and well first of all let's talk about confidence i mean were you nervous when you would get called up for a project uh you know an adjuster would call you to clean a house or clean a building i mean did did you get nervous or did you know the adrenaline get going were you confident or well sometimes when when i, I believe when i got a uh let's say a uh, a, a high-rise building that has has had a fire and, and, and the executive floors are, are smoked up and I know that all of a sudden in order to make an impression I've got to you know have at least 60 extra people there and that would kind of make me nervous until I got everything kind of going in the right direction but uh, I, I knew I could do it because no one else could so I knew I could do it um, but that was that was something you know that I maybe would get a little nervous over. I know one uh, one particular one. I had a, a real bad fire in a Firestone store that had a basement that had I think it had forty thousand tires in the basement, and a lot of them burned up in that fire because the fire started in the basement. It had this awful, terrible tire, burnt tire odor, and I had to get a lot of people in there and day and night to clean. This was when I was first first went into business. And, uh, 
I stayed there for one let's see, one day, one night, and another day, and I was going into the second night, and I just passed out, and I had, I looked like I had yellow jongas, you know, from, I mean, my skin turned yellow, and I, and I just passed out, and I had to take me to the hospital, so I would say that would be uh, being nervous, you know. <laughs> may have been a little run down, too. Did they tell you in the hospital what they thought the problem was? They said they it looked like yellow jaundice, but it looked like I was just exhausted, you know. So, And, and my my body just turned on me, you know, and just said, that's it, you know, and I just fainted. Well, if you so think about what you're breathing in that building as well, you know, particulate and uh, you know, right. I, you know, I don't think anyone really thought much about respiratory protection or anything back then. And you know, I think of the things that we did—you know, ripping off asbestos roofs and, and doing demolition—and no one really thought much uh, about it. How did you know how much to charge, Major? Did did you? How did you evolve your pricing method? Did you do this time and material? Did you do this unit cost? Did you kind of make it up on the fly? Did you keep records, you know, in the past of, you know, where you made money and where you may have lost money, or was it intuitive? <laughs> I guess all of those things, Glenn. Okay. <laughs> at, at one time or the other, I had to use whichever method was uh, asked of me. Uh, right. I, I preferred not to give, you know, prices beforehand on big jobs, but uh, sometimes I had to, so I just had to kind of wing it and, and guess, but uh, I, I didn't like to do time and material estimates. I just, I never, I never liked to do that. I, if somebody insisted on an estimate, I'd give them a, a line estimate and they could take it or leave it. But uh, in a lot of cases, you know, if they just wanted me to do it and didn't care what it cost, then uh, it would probably cost them the same thing. But I would, I tried to always make money on, on, smoke damage losses. Mm -hmm. well, I'm just curious, how how did you decide, you know, what methods work best or what doesn't? Was it just trial and error? Did you have some resources you tried to pull together? Well, let's take the uh, Firestone store with, the, with all the tires in the basement that had to each be cleaned. And so I got, uh, I, I never did it before, but I thought, well, how am I going to do this? So I got uh, eight uh, troughs that you have in uh, for cows that are made out of metal and, and they drink out of them. Mm -hmm. And so I got six of those so we could fill it full of uh, uh, soapy solution and they could just spin the tires in there and, you know, wash all the tires. So that was something you just had to think up. How are you going to do it? You know, that, that worked. Of course, didn't work on me very well on that job. <laughs> we got the job done. What about the the soot removal? What, what methods were you using for that back then? Uh, well, we even, we had the chemical sponges back then, and that was of course the, the 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 best thing in the world for you know getting smoke off of drywall, uh, my latex paint. So that was the primary method, but then I also uh, had a company make uh, some purple cleaner that was, uh, you know, like we get today, that's purple cleaner in the grocery store, but it's, it was the same thing back then, but I, I had them put them in gallon jugs for me with labels uh, stating they were smoke and grease remover uh, product, and uh, 
that was something we used with a bucket and terry cloth towel methods to clean uh, enamel walls or, or or surfaces that are you know not uh, you know that that can be washed <laughs> you know chemical so, chemi- go ahead i'm sorry the chemical sponges you're aware of oh yeah and i i would suspect that the chemical that you had made you know if it worked effectively would have been similar to what the listeners would know as 409 or, or fantastic a lot of those have what's called a glycol ether in them or a degreaser uh in them and i mean even windex utilized uh, uh you know some of that technology so it just depended how much and it's pretty good at melting that uh, Windex that's not smoke enough, No, no, but I meant Windex utilized uh, a glycol ether as well, you okay. know, but uh, no. not as strong as Fantastic or 409. So, you know, you're definitely right there. Well, you're the chemical man. Well, <laughs> no. I'm trying to be, man. Uh, well, let's, uh, before we move on, why don't we uh, quickly thank our sponsors one more time here. And then, uh... IAQ Radio would like to thank our association sponsors. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Particles Plus, engineers and manufacturers feature rich particle counters, air quality monitoring, instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them. WolfSense.com. IAQ marquee sponsors are... John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net. Legends Environmental Insurance, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. That's legends-enviro.com. Okay, Major, you know, in your history, did you ever work for anyone uh, famous? Uh, you know I did. I, know. <laughs> uh, I, I did, was fortunate enough to be a consultant on uh, uh, Jackie Gleason's house in Miami when he had a bad, a very bad fire, and he had it was an enormous uh, residence, and uh, it was just amazing to go in to see as many uh, things that he had like in the playroom he had four pool tables you know that instead of having just one and Hmm. things like that it was just amazing his books were he had uh, at least 3,000 books that were all first editions leather bounds and uh, every one of those had to be cleaned or or pre-cleaned before it was put in a box so that it wouldn't be smashed in, you know. So, mm-hmm. so it was a very interesting job, and I enjoyed being on that one. What did, did he have photographs? I would imagine he had some really good photographs and things like that. How do you handle those during a fire damage? Well, it depends on whether uh, he had a lot of them that had glass uh, on, on the front, you know, protected by you know good framing and good good paper on the back, and usually those can 
be you know protected but where you have uh, oil paintings you know that hit the the crux of the heat then sometimes you can't do anything for them you know if it's smoke sometimes you can take care of it you know restore the painting or the or the print but uh, if there's a lot of heat involved there's they're used, that's something that, as a consultant, I had to take each each piece and determine what can be done with it or whether it's a total loss. Did you send them off, the, the valuable, like the uh, oil paintings? Did they, I know people use, like, the Chicago Art Conservancy and places like that. Was that available to you then? Sure. Oh, yeah. That was, it's always been available in Atlanta or Miami or any big city there. You don't have to send it to a museum, though. They're... they're art restorers you know that actually a lot of them own framing places that, and they also do uh, restorations too so uh, they're, they're more than glad to take care of it and if they if it can be done then they'll do it very good cliff um did you get it t- tell us a little bit about um you know how you handled wood furniture you know that you would run into uh Wood furniture was, um, we had a product from a chem spec called wood cream that, uh, mm-hmm. and I think you later had the same thing Similar under point, another, right. another name, and which was very good on, uh, you know, taking the smoke off of uh, hardwood furniture and uh, and also on smoke had a, uh, a little canned uh, deodorant that they had in cans that you could put in the drawers. To, right over a period of time that would remove the smoke odor, which were very good. We used a lot of those. What what would you do if cleaning didn't work? Well, then, we didn't do refinishing ourselves, but we would send it out to be refinished or either determine whether the piece is worth refinishing. You know, if if we found in the plant that we could not restore the hardwood uh, piece to, you know, pre-fire condition, and it was going to cost, in my estimation, more to refinish it than it would be the total loss it for the customer. Then I would give the customer that choice to to decide what what to do. See, that was really a trick question, Major, that we asked you that because we got a hold of your application for the National Institute of Fire Restoration, and in this, you listed your primary business areas as wood furniture cleaning, wall and floor cleaning upholstery cleaning, carpet cleaning, and furnace and duct cleaning. So this probably goes back to the 1970s. And, you know, I remember you had some pretty slick color brochures pretty early on when, you know, no one Uh had that type of marketing material. And you had, uh, there was a photograph that you had in there, and it looked as though you'd taken a, a piece of tape or whatever. And, you know, to separate this, chest of drawers that was in there and i remember you know once one half was beautifully restored and you know the other half was uh was was looking pretty bad that was just you know one of those photos that you know has stuck in my mind for a long time but speaking of marketing uh what was the best marketing thing that you ever did in terms of marketing your business well i did this particular uh ploy uh before i even had to use it because I knew I would have to use it one day. I, I had a uh, eight by ten uh, rug that you have made with uh, the lettering in it, and mm-hmm. I had it Oakmaster at work. 
mm-hmm. and the phone number. Mm-hmm. And I knew I would use that someday on a big commercial loss. And sure enough, I didn't have it more than two months. And this high-rise apartment building had a fire, and I put it right in the lobby, even though I hadn't got any work out of the building yet. <laughs> I right as you walk in through the front door, and these were all older, lady, older rich ladies that lived here. I had the phone ringing until I had to tell them to stop. We couldn't do anymore, you know, because there were so many. There was at least a hundred apartments with expensive furniture in there. And I, I always, when I got to a saturation point on on location work, or even on packouts, I'd, I'd have to say, I can't do anymore. You'll have to call Service Master or New Look or another one of my competitors because we can't do anymore. We're sorry, but we can't do anymore. So, but that worked perfect i got more work out of that one rug than any any anything i've ever done i'm curious do you still do uh, a little consulting work at all uh well i would i just don't uh, <laughs> no one wants me anymore <laughs> <laughs> i don't know about that I, I'm, I'm i'll turn 70 next year and i guess people think most people in the industry think i'm already dead so you know. <laughs> i don't know about that <laughs> Uh, did you ever have branch offices with your business? Uh, can you tell us about that? And, you know, uh, can you take us into the franchising sure. side of it? Well, I first opened a, my first branch was in Tampa, Florida. And when it was initially successful, I opened another one in Houston, Texas. This branch was real lucky to get a smoke mansion in the first few weeks that we opened. And that was a $15,000 uh, on location fire, which was very good to start with. So Atlanta was doing so well that I just made a decision to advertise and franchise Smokemaster. I had no previous uh, success or, or knowledge about uh, how to franchise other than just reading books and, you know, trying to find out how you would go about franchising. And and, and I, I did it, and if it, you know, hadn't had a problem, I would have probably been more successful. Why don't you tell us about the problem? What what exactly happened with that? Well, after selling the franchise, after selling franchises in Memphis, St. Louis, and Joliet, Illinois, I transferred my two branches, Tampa and Houston, to franchises. And in this very same year, Service Master took me to federal trademark court and made me desist in using my name as it was causing confusion with their market share. So I gave my franchises a choice to let me bear the expense of changing their name to Smoke Services or letting them go independent with no liability. And, of course, they all chose to go out on their own, and I still remained friends with all of them for many years. But uh, in, in 1978, I was just content to operate only Smoke Services and uh, as my only location and, you know, not try to be a big dog any longer, more or less. <laughs> you know, I think it would be a little bit different today. I think that, uh, you know, I don't ever believe that they would have been able to win that win that suit, but I, I know how big they were and, uh, you know, how intimidating uh, that the threat of litigation and, and so on and so forth uh, can be. There's one question on this list I'm a little curious about here that Cliff put up. Uh, he says, "It's what prompted you to buy a Rolls-Royce, Major? 
Uh, well, I've always bought, you know, expensive cars when I even couldn't afford them. But uh, at the at the time, I was feeling kind of frisky, you know. With uh, I guess I had sold some franchises, and I thought, you know, it was going to go uh, really big. And and I was having lunch with some adjusters and had a few too many cocktails, I guess. And then I <laughs> stopped stopped by the the uh, dealership and uh, just I couldn't. It was a chocolate brown chocolate brown brand new just come in. Uh, Rolls Royce Silver Shadow, and I just couldn't resist it. So I, I I kept it for about a year, and I did have a lot of fun with it. Just, but I had to use it at night because I couldn't let any of the adjusters know that you know I had a Rolls Royce affected <laughs> my business. I thought you so, gave. But a... anyway. It, it was worthwhile. <laughs> I thought you gave a really good tip earlier, and I, I just wanted to make sure that I got it right. That um, you know, you kept calling these adjusters, whether they gave you work or not. I, I'm assuming that paid off. In that, I don't know. Maybe you could tell me. Do you think it was just that? You, since you were calling on a regular basis, your name was fresh on their mind when something came up, or. Maybe they couldn't contact someone else, and they thought, let's give this guy a try. Do you know, did you ever check with them on why that worked? Well, most of these, uh, and not, not most of the ones I called on, but I, I would say I had probably 20 adjusters that uh, at some time weren't my customer, but after I you know, saw them so many times, they would either, I'd ask them to go to lunch or or. Uh, tell them about my company again and they would uh you know the, a lot of them were sick of you know coming in all the time but I, I figured that it would pay off sooner or later and some of them get a fire in there and they couldn't get service master to to go look at it or something and they'd say well we just give major a call it was worthwhile to persistently call on uh, insurance adjusters i don't know if that's the case today because i'm sure it sounds like they've all got contracts with people, so they you know don't want to use anybody except one person. So that's my impression of today's market. T tell me about the engraved invitations. Well, that that was to uh, it was our I think our, our first or second year in business. I, I I said it was our anniversary, and it was an engraved invitation, just as it would be a wedding invitation. I had them done very nicely. And in a very nice envelope and mailed to 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 all the customers that I knew that existed, and in it it said that we'd like you to have lunch with you and your partner at the Chateau Fleurdelis restaurant, which was the most expensive restaurant in Atlanta at the time. Uh, at any time, just call and tell the maitre that you're coming in, and they'll it's all taken care of as far as the expense and. Some of them send them back and they can't, you know, they can't, they're not allowed to, you know, accept anything like that. But all in all, uh, over the period of the year, they didn't use them right away, but uh, I must have had 40 to 50 of them do use it. So, And it was productive. All I had to do was get one fire to pay for the whole fund. Nice. Very nice. Well, let's do this, Major. We're going to go to what we call the round table here. And bring back Glenn Fellman and Dr. Wow, and we'll go around the table one time and see if anybody has final questions and comments. And then uh, Cliff and I will also have some final questions. Okay, sure. 
Great. Hang on. Glenn, any questions? Hello. Well, you know, it's so interesting to, to hear from a veteran uh, from an industry that has gone through so much change in technology and, and systems and, and corporate structure, especially in the last 10 years. Um, and so it's been really great to get the perspective of, of how things were versus how things are, are today. I have a question which relates um, to the labor market in that I hear from a lot of restoration contractors that they're having a lot of trouble these days finding competent labor, um, labor who can read and write and that type of thing even. How would you compare the market for labor today versus the way it was 20 or 30 years ago when um, uh, maybe things were different, Major? Well, uh, in Atlanta that many years ago, uh, I would say 95% of all my employees were black, and they always worked out better. Uh, today, uh, in cashers, in a small way, we've got 100% Mexicans working. Now, I think this is going to vary in any market, but uh, I think you have to find who's who can do this type of work or who can be trained to do this type of work at the type of wages that you know that you can pay to make money with them. I think that's about all I can say. I appreciate that. I'll pass along to the next person and come back around to me if there's still time. Very good. Dieter? Well, I always learn a little bit. Uh, it's one of those things. Uh, there are many subjects you, know, you kind of take for granted and then when you look a little bit deeper into it, there is a heck of a lot more behind it than what meets the eye, you know, up front. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's tricky to, to, to listen to that. As I said, I'm obviously not an expert in, uh, in that field, but um, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm interested um, you know, in the, uh, the intricacies of doing business. And, uh, yeah, if you work hard, you make it, and uh, I think that's good. And that's a tough. It's a tough business because you're kind of depending on the the adjusters. I would think you know they they hold all the cards. And uh, I know Dieter, you're not used to that. You've always had uh, clients calling right. you, you know, and you didn't have to go out and uh, wine and dine the adjusters. So it's a little bit different for you. Very much so. Yes. All right. Uh, let's go over to Cliff. Major, I always wondered what led you to pioneer this computer estimating for for damage repair. Well, um, back in 1977, I bought my first computer, which was the IBM personal computer, which was one of the first first computers, and it cost $6,000 and was one of my smartest purchases because after I bought it, I decided that I had to make estimates every day of my life, you know, and I had, they were line estimates and I had to handwrite them. There was no, no structure to, to make it easier. So I knew I had to get, uh, design a program, you know, and get a program programmer to, uh, initiate it into this new computer. And after, uh, it took me a year to, to with it, um, constantly to, to, to make, to make this thing work. And, uh, and then after I made it work, I w was successful in selling it to other restorers. Mm -hmm. And, uh, of course, I don't use it today because it was written in DOS, and, and I haven't um, been able to, uh, you know, use it 
uh, recently. I guess I, That's all. I wanted to ask um, what, you know, you've been a pioneer in this industry. You've been doing this for probably 35, 40 years now. What of, of all your accomplishments, which are you most proud of or which do you think stands out? Ah, uh, well, I felt like just my my life, you know, as a restorer, and and my accomplishments with uh, Asker, which was, you know, I enjoyed that very much. Uh, uh, doing seminars for a year, as you know, as the uh, taking Martin's place for a year while he took a sabbatica, sabbatical. Uh, that was a very Fun part of my life, and uh, I would have met my whole life. My whole life has been very uh, happy. I think you know, mm -hmm. I, I've had you know divorces and things like that, but that's that's to be you know that happens. Right. I would imagine it had to be pretty satisfying to you know go in and have somebody who's in one of the lowest points in their life just after a fire, and uh, to be able to go in there and and help them get back on their feet. It, it is. It, it certainly is. Uh, and they usually, you know, they don't look at you like the like they would the insurance adjuster. They're skeptical of the insurance adjuster, but they kind of look at you like you're a friend rather than somebody that's going to come in there and take advantage of their personal contents in their life. They kind of respect that. So yeah, that works out good. I can imagine too with your your calm demeanor and just during talking to you here right now you probably gave people a real sense of confidence when you came in and uh, that had to be satisfying I did at one point I, I, I developed a audio video program on a, uh, a portable audio video thing this was back in uh, back in the early days and it would flip through the screen and show the insured and how you know how things are going to be changed you know, once she used our services and everything, I think probably uh, Cliff would probably remember that. I do. Yeah, it's like way before laptops. And, you know, I was thinking I had one made as well for, you know, our, our deodorizing system. And, you know, you look at what it costs and bring people in to film this. And, you know, you had to have a, a speaker, uh, you know, narrate it. And, you know, this is like right. way, way before laptops and stuff like that. But, uh kind of like a slideshow. Yeah, but, you yeah, know. yeah. Before you could do a radio show out of a conference room in uh, Coriopolis, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania huh? the right, right. <laughs> We've come a long way, Major. Before we go, I just wanted to uh, quickly ask, is there anything that we left out or any uh, memories that you'd like to share with us real quick before we go? And then if you could tell people, uh, if you don't mind, how they could get a hold of you if they would like. Uh, I can't think of anything that you've left out. Uh, uh, my phone number is 828-743-5975. Uh, my uh, website is uh, capital L, lowercase l, I-C-H-E-N-1 at AOL.com. And I'd be glad to talk to anyone that'd like to uh, give me a ring or send me an email. Perfect. Well, great. We want to thank you so much for joining us this week on IAQ Radio, and hopefully we'll be able to talk to you again down the road. Okay, thank you. All right.
Before we go, I want to thank my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. It's always a pleasure, Joe. Thank you, Cliff. The wingman, Chris Boisel. And, of course, our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil. Thanks to Glenn Fellman for joining us with IE Connections What's News. And uh, most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners, let's set another record this week. We were close last week, but it wasn't a record. Let's uh, download some more shows and set another record. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.